Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, brothers and sisters. So good to see all of you here. Join me in Revelation chapter 6. We're in a series that, uh, that I actually missed preaching on last week. I loved our unity service, love that. There are times where, you know what, we, we just do need to break a little of the monotony and do things a little differently, but I was just kind of sitting in my seat last week, just kind of with, I don't know, just, I was a little punchy. Um, felt like I ought to be preaching this text last week. Well, this week I get to do it. Um, and and I'm, just, I'm just excited about it. This series is taking us verse by verse through the apocalypse. We're looking over the shoulders, as it were, of these first century readers, the first people, that suffering group of churches that first received this letter of encouragement to them. And, and we're trying to see in the middle of their suffering what God is doing and, and what God is going to do. And today we get a deeper look behind that veil as, as the Lord, through his servant John, is going to open up a window for us and allow us to see kind of behind the veil. How is Jesus being revealed? What is God doing in human history? And we're going to find two things this morning in these two chapters. The first is a warning that we are living in difficult times. They were, we are, and until the return of Jesus, we always will be. And so we're going to see that there's warning here. Furthermore, that oftentimes it gets worse before it gets better. That's encouraging, isn't it? And we're going to see that during these trials, those people who call themselves Christian, they're going to find out what they're made of. And that's a general truism, by the way. Have you found that to be true? You, you really don't know someone until you have suffered with them, have you? There's that old adage, you really don't know who someone is until you work with them. That's true too, isn't it? But you really, I mean, when you put somebody under fire, you put somebody's life under a microscope, you, you, that, the biggest microscope in the world, the biggest magnifying glass in the world is pressure. And you begin to see how people react. C.S. Lewis put it in this way. He said, surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence of what sort of man he is. That's what we're going to find out today. If there are rats in a cellar, you most likely see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness of the provocation does not make me ill-tempered. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Satan has asked my permission to sift you like wheat. And I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter, I'm responding to that kind of like, okay, well, I'm glad you're praying for me. You told him no, right? Like, like you, you're not going to let him, right? No, I, I'm, I'm letting him off the chain. Your life is going to become hell for a little while. And I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. In other words, God allows adversity in our life to test our mettle, to see what we're made of. God sends adversity, at least in part, to reveal those things to us and about us. And so the, the warning of Revelation 6 and 7 is that this adversity is coming and it might even get worse. But we also see encouragement, particularly in chapter 7. And it's this, God's people are going to persevere. God's people are going to be victorious. And, and the worship of the Lamb continues around this throne 
And the lamb begins to break the seals. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, you remember that, that metaphorical symbol of the deed to the earth and all of its history sealed up. And only one, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, qualified to break those seals, to unleash that history, to bring history to its consummated close. We're going to look at the first six of those seven today. And the first four, they, they're interesting. Uh, they're quite imposing. We today call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, if you're not, if you're not as familiar with Scripture as perhaps others are, and you're in, I mean, it really depends on how old you are, because some of you are like four horsemen. Isn't that some wrestling team from the 80s? Is that who that is? Others of you may think about a Western. Wait a minute, I thought there were only three amigos. Like, what, what's going on here? The four horsemen of the apocalypse... Well, the primary question we need to be asking is this. When we look at this picture of these four horsemen and these four riders, what did John intend to say and what did those first readers, how did they receive it? Because that's what determines meaning, right? Remember what we've been saying over this entire series. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. That said, there's a little leeway here. There's some wiggle room. I'll be honest, even among your elders, we don't all agree on exactly what this is pointing to, all right? So it's okay to be a little unsure. It's okay to have a strong opinion, as long as you hold it in, uh, in humility. But, but before we get started, I want to give you those four primary schools of thought and just kind of lay my cards on the table here for you uh, so that you'll know at least where I'm coming from. But the four schools of thought, all legitimate, all within bounds, but I want you to be thinking about these. Then your small groups this week, you'll discuss this a little bit. The first is, is pre-tierism. Pre-tierism says that everything is descri that descri is described here describes the Roman invasion of Israel in A.D. 66 to quell a Jewish rebellion, and it brought bloodshed, civil war, famine, death, which it did, that's true, and ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So if you're talking to a pre-terrorist and you go, what does this mean? They're going to say, don't keep looking down the road, check your rear view. We've missed it. It's already happened, okay? And it's already been completely fulfilled. Historicism is the second school of thought. The unsealing of this part of the scroll represents the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire. So they also would say, this is in the rearview mirror with respect to those of us living in the 21st century. It's just a little further down the road than our pre-terrorist brothers think it is. It wasn't really about the fall of Jerusalem. It was about the subsequent fall of Rome. And so that the period of history that's covered here begins with Domitian, who's in power when this letter is written, and then it concludes with the Visigoth, the Vandal invasions in the 4th and the 5th century. Thirdly, there's, there's futurism. This is where most people in the United States have landed through, because of all kinds of influences I don't have time to go into today, but this unsealing is the beginning of what's called the Great Tribulation, and it's going to come in the future. Okay, it's, none of this has really happened yet. It's all kind of out there in the future. Some people believe the church is going to be raptured out before all of that happens. Others believe, nope, we're going to have to live through it. But nonetheless, all of this is in the future. And then finally, there's idealism. Now, what idealism does is it kind of picks from all three of those and combines them under, under a larger picture. And so it would say there's a sense of truth in all of these but overall, this, this picture in, in chapter 6 and 7, it represents God's dealings with mankind that is seen in repeated cycles of war and martyrdom and famine, and, and they underscore God's sovereignty and the rise and the fall of every earthly kingdom. So just lay my cards on the table here. 
That's my perspective. So as I preach Revelation 6 and 7 to you, that's the presumption that I'm coming from. You don't have to agree with your pastor on that. That's okay. Look at your neighbor and go, I don't have to always agree with my pastor. Go ahead. Do it. It's fine. Now, look back at your neighbor and say it again. I don't always have to agree with you. Right? We, we don't always have to be in lockstep. If we always agree on everything, all but one of us just needs to disappear. Okay? Zig Ziglar used to say that. If two people agree all the time, one of them is absolutely unnecessary. It's okay to debate a little bit, to have it. Listen, every single position that I've just described is inbounds. In, in, in terms of the position of orthodoxy, there are men on our elder ministry that don't agree with, with what I've just said, and I love them, and they love me. And that's the way we ought to be with the church family. But here's what I am going to tell you. I want us, regardless of where you land on that spectrum, I want us to extract the message here that was first sent to those seven churches, and I want us to take heart. That's what I want you to do today. My goal is not to get you to agree with my preferred interpretive scheme of revelation. My goal is for you to take heart. My goal is for you to be encouraged. And you need to know a couple of things for that to happen. Number one, there's nothing really new here. All right, Revelation doesn't teach us anything that Jesus hasn't already taught us in his own words. And we're going to see that as we move through this text together because we're going to go back and forth occasionally between Revelation 6 and 7 and Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 that simply vindicate everything that John is effectively repeating to the disciples of Jesus living in Asia Minor. Number two, we are going to find with abundant clarity here what is actually required to follow Jesus. And some of you, some of you, we may get to the end of this today, and you might go, I don't know him like I think I did. I mean, I, I thought I knew him. I grew up in a Christian family. I'm living in a largely Christian bubble, Christian environment. I'm a good, conservative, socially acceptable, you know, pretty good morally. I, I thought I knew Jesus, but not like this. And for you, today's an invitation. It's an invitation into a, a life of great abundance that you may not know anything of. And so I'm praying for you today. And I want to give you three challenges. Now, word of warning, the first one is going to take the bulk of our time. All right. So when we get past number one, and you realize, wait a minute, we only got we, we we've got two left, and it's quarter to, it's quarter till ten. Hang with me. All right. It, it'll move. The, the other two will move quickly, but we got to dive deep into this first one, and it's this. We just simply need to be real about what's coming. Whether you believe it was in the past, whether you believe it's all in the future, or something in between, one of the things that we see, particularly in these four writers, are things that all of us experience at different levels throughout our lives, and we need to be real about that. And it starts with verse 1. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like, Thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, this is a symbol, again, Revelation's full of symbolism, of those who imitate messianic traits, but they ain't the Messiah. Okay? Jesus warned us about this. Matthew 24, 5, many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. There are going to be people from the time of Jesus until the time of the return of Jesus who are going to imitate Jesus, but they're not Jesus. And we're constantly warned here until the real Jesus returns, you and I are constantly going to be offered sugar substitutes 
False teaching, false promises, false assurances. This was happening in the first century as well. Look at this text from another of John's letters, 1 John chapter 4. He says, By this you knew the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already in John's day. All right, so some of you are, it's all in the future. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. It was already there. It, you know, requires some more study. But, but I'm pointing this out to you to show you there was an ancient heresy even in the first century. The big $10 word for it was doceticism. Don't have time to go into it today. But, but to the first century, this was a, apparently an attractive imitation savior. And that is what in various forms and, and factions throughout history has been offered by the enemy even to God's own people. It is an imitation of a savior who is attractive but who has no actual power to save. He will take you to hell with him. That's what false teachers do. There is a way to believe in Jesus, especially in this largely Christian culture that we live in. I'm talking about the Christian bubble. There is a way in the middle of that to believe in Jesus that has nothing to do with the real Jesus. And that ought to scare some of us. Dean and Sarah speaks about this one version of Jesus. He's really popular in the West. He's the, he's the brand that we use or that we wear to enhance ourselves. Makes ourselves look spiritual, but in reality, we're just using an idol to, to prop up our own image. To quote my brother, he says, cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but doesn't think he's needed except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. All due deference to Carrie Underwood. And so it sounds different ways. Like outside the church, it's pretty obvious to those of us who are Bible-believing Christians. Well, look, I mean, you know, there are probably many ways to God. I mean, Jesus and Buddha, they're, they're basically the same. Inside the church, it's a little more sinister. Inside the church, he's just diminished. All right? We, we confess orthodoxy, but we don't live it. Jesus is Lord. Really? It don't look like it when I examine your life. All right? I'm not talking about struggle. I'm not talking about, listen, we, we're all sinners. We're all, I'm talking about willful abandonment and rebellion followed by, well, I'll just ask him to forgive me, and then I can live how I want to. That's not Jesus as Lord. That's Jesus as a mascot. That's Jesus as, as somebody added to your life. That's not to live as Christ and to die as gain. He wants everything. Beware of a Jesus that you can control to your own liking. Beware. All right, I was warned in seminary, uh, especially on the basis of Paul's pastoral epistles. There, a time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but, but they will seek for themselves teachers having ear, their, ear, their ears are going to itch. They want to scratch them. And, of course, this was in the, in the late 90s, and, and the, the biggest manifestation of that was, was theological liberalism. And it's still dangerous to the soul, very dangerous. Low view of Scripture, low view of Jesus, low view of exclusivity, uh, completely absent understanding of, of substitutionary atonement, not necessary to believe in bodily resurrection. All that, oh yeah, that, that's pleasing to the ears. But what I've come to understand is that there can be good, solid, conservative people who have the same thing. You, you start using Scripture and pushing up against their prefabricated worldviews and ideals, and they hit the door. Civil religion is deadly 
to the soul. And there are people in the West so baptized in it, they can't tell that they're merely following the white rider. And that's what we're called to do. Beware attractive messages that never challenge you, never push up against you, always affirm everything you believe, always giving you a shortcut around suffering, direct to glorification. You're staring at the white rider. John goes on, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This is the red horse. And as he comes, he brings the very warfare that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, the truth is, because we're living on a broken planet and we are broken people and sinful ourselves, that humanity, since the fall, has always had a bent toward violence and toward war. We see this in its first expression in Genesis chapter 4 when one brother slays another one and spills his blood. And by the way, that's the same thing that happens every time there's a ground war, every time there's a bombing. Every, no, I am not a pacifist. Yes, I believe there is evil in the world that regrettably sometimes can only be met with deadly force in order to put it back and protect the vulnerable. But we do what is necessary and simultaneously we do not strut and we do not celebrate the taking of human life that's the red horse the red horse is not going to war some of you have been there and we thank god for you we thank god for you and we, we weep with you and have compassion with you over what some of you have been made to endure but we do not celebrate it one of the tactics for training for warfare is to condition those who go to war to dehumanize their opponents. Did you know that? Because if you can take the humanity out of it, it makes the targets easier to kill. Our world has seen this in waves since the time of Jesus. In our own day, we've seen modicum, a modicum of it, World War II, Vietnam, both Gulf Wars. But even during times of relative peace here in the States, there has always been conflict raging somewhere in the world. That red horse has not stopped galloping since the first century. And here's what we need to know. What ends up overt begins as covert, to use a military analogy. What ends as overt begins as covert, because I read about that red horse, and any of you who've read the news once this week, your mind immediately goes to the border with Ukraine and Russia. I'm not telling you that's an illegitimate connection. I am telling you that John's calling us to look deeper than that. See, I, I'm an American citizen. America is part of NATO. NATO is asserting itself right now in certain ways. And, and yes, I've got strong opinions about, about some of that and the way that ought to go down. But, but the truth of the matter is I'm at least three degrees separated from what's happening on the Ukrainian-Russian border, and there ain't a whole heck of a lot I can do about it. And I'm guessing there's not really anybody in this room, unless there's some federal official that I'm unaware of that does have that kind of power, who can do anything about it. Am I right? I mean, you can gripe about it. You can go to the barbershop, beauty salon, Facebook. You, you can gripe. What's your opinion ever done to change anything? All right. John's not calling us to look at the, the Russian-Ukrainian border today. He's calling us to look deeper. You know why? Because there's not a single spot of bloodshed. There's not a single ground war. There's not a single air war. There's not a battle that's ever happened on this planet that did not first start in the human heart. Don't be looking at the Russian-Ukrainian border. You look right here. 
First and foremost, it's right here because all of us have that propensity. How has the red rider influenced me? Is there rage? I'm not talking about righteous anger and injustice. Listen, I'm not telling you anger is wrong. I'm saying unjust anger, this sort of self-centered, I want what's mine. Give me. Oh, I mean, the latest thing that illustrates this is called a rage room. I didn't even realize this until just a few weeks ago. I was doing some research. I'm like, baby, do you, talking to my wife, like, do you, do you, did you know these things even existed? She's like, oh, yeah, it's a rage room. You pay an exorbitant fee, they give you a bat. All right, and you just go in there and just start bat, right? Look, I'm not telling you even that you're in sin for doing that. Some of you may do it just because it's fun. Whatever. I'm not telling you, but it's certainly better than taking it out on a person. I am saying that's an illustration of we, we have a population full of people that are looking for a way of coping with the fact that their heart is full of rage and they don't know what to do with it. That's where we are. Just look on social media. Try to take a drive from here to Martinsburg without somebody freaking tailgating you. And going around you, laying on the horn, giving you the finger. Yeah, you know, I'm, you know I'm telling you the truth. There is nowhere you can go on this planet that you will not find the very kind of uncontrolled anger that leads to bloodshed and war. And so the first question I've got to ask is, where's that, where's that seated and present right here where the Lord Jesus got to burn that out of my soul? All right, the desire for, for, for revenge, the desire to pop off. If you're one of those people that you're just constantly snapping, and then you apologize, then you just do it again. The red horse is riding in your soul. All warfare starts in the heart. John goes on, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This horse and its rider represent famine. Jesus included famine, Matthew 24, 7, among a list of things that we should expect. And the technical definition of famine is widespread scarcity. But our mistake often is we tend to look at that as, as though it's only talking about food. Now, there's food insecurity even right here. That's why this coming Tuesday night we'll be out there again. All right, we'll be in Fox Glen, we'll be at Apple Tree. We, we get that the issue is not supply in this country, but, but distribution. And how do we get it there? There is even more scarcity in other places around the world. But the big picture here is interesting because you see what is obvious, well, especially in this economy, you see, you see this out-of-control inflation on the price of things that we need to get along. That's reflected here bought a gallon of gas lately, right? And so, so that's, that's obvious to us. But then there's this less obvious picture that's like, do not harm the oil and the wine. And when you, when you take these two together, here's what you end up with. A world where there is scarcity of the things we need and abundance of the things we don't. That, that's the world we're living in. And that, that how much of my heart cries out for things that I really don't need. This is a famine of the soul, at least in part. And when coupled with the white horse that we just described, it becomes a famine of truth, famine of freedom, famine of need. All right? what, what do we have in spades in our culture right now? We got money, 
we got technology. We, we've got unlimited access to information that's made us smarter, right? Yeah, think about that one a little bit. What do we have scarcity of? Relationship, love, community. Listen, in the United States, we are in the middle of a famine right now. I don't, I'm not talking about food. I'm not talking about wealth. I mean, listen, we, I know we don't look like Somalia. I'm going to tell you what it looks like, though. It looks like gated communities dotted all over America with big old tall high security fences and itty-bitty small dining room tables. There's scarcity of relationship. There's, there's scarcity of love. There's scarcity of those kind of things. When you have an abundance, food isn't the only thing that needs to be scarce to have a famine. When you have an abundance in things you don't really need and a scarcity of things you do really need, you're living in famine. And that's happening all over the world. And it's probably happening to some of you. And all of these things combined in waves throughout history result in the following. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Pale actually is a bit of a mistranslation. It's yellowish green. I have never, is anybody in here your favorite color, yellow green? Yeah, that's what I figured. I have never, right? I love red. I love blue. I, I love green. I love orange. I mean, I've never had anybody. What's your favorite color? Vomit. I like that. I like vomit. That's my favorite color. Because that's basically what this is. It's, it's nasty. Disease, and, and it should be, because disease and disaster combined with the warfare and the famine that's been mentioned earlier, and the result is death. And, and we've, we've been reminded of that, have we not? That death surrounds us. It really doesn't matter. We can lock everybody down, put masks on everybody, vaccinate everybody. Listen, I'm not, you know me, I'm not necessarily opposed to doing what we need to do. So, but, but what are we going to do? Even if all of that did everything we expected it to do, which, which it really didn't, what it does is it creates other problems in other places, doesn't it? It's mental health stuff from the isolation and suicide rates and opioid addiction. It's like every time we get a handle on things in one area of the world, something else explodes and we're off to that. That's the whole reason we got to have first responders. Because this is the world we're living in and that experience tells us that death perpetually, I mean it has from the beginning and even today, it mocks our hospitals and our medical care systems and all of our advanced drugs and all of our technology and our research. Everything we experience on this earth, if we're paying attention, reminds us, ain't nobody whipping death on this earth. Eventually, that rider's going to come up into my living room or my bedroom or meet me on the side of the road somewhere in a car accident or in a hospital room somewhere after one of my organs has failed. It's coming. It's coming. And these four horsemen come with two less prominent but, but ever-present byproducts. First of all, persecution. Verse 10, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they has borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
We've given our lives for you. Where's the vindication? And then natural calamity. The philosophers call natural evil, which in some ways is more sinister. Because if I'm fighting a a flesh and blood enemy, if if I'm facing down another human being who's persecuting for me for my faith, at least I I know the reason. When a tornado takes my house, when cancer ravages my body, when a heart attack or some other disease takes a loved one from me. When as I just saw last night, woman I don't even know, She's connected to an academic colleague of mine at, at Southeastern Seminary. Just lost a 14-month-old baby girl to the flu. And I look at that. And I see that the result of this, natural calamity. You're like, what was the reason for that? We don't know. But verse 12 says, it's coming. I opened the sixth seal. I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became as black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. And when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Here's the the somewhat unsettling fact that if we're going to get to the real encouragement, we've got to face this first. The Lord through John is communicating with churches executing their mission and living their lives under fire and he is telling them this is normal we haven't asked that question recently have we when are we going to get back to normal jesus just told us through his servant john for the church throughout its history in general with rare exception suffering is normal You still want to follow Jesus? Do you? It's going to cost you. Natural calamity. The global reality, too, that these these churches faced in the first century is the same global reality that we face in the 21st. Here's the big idea. This world is no good on its own. It has, in total, willfully sought to exist on its own, apart from its creator. And everything we see just described has been the inevitable result of this. The world is no good on its own. And all of us who live in this broken place are going to experience, in different quantities, the results of that brokenness. So some people are going to get sucked in by false teaching and brainwashed. Some people are going to be victims of violence. Some people are going to be subjected to abject poverty. And eventually, death comes for all of us. Max Dupree said the first first responsibility of a leader, and I would say of anybody really, if you're going to understand and be a disciple of Jesus in this world, it is to define reality. John just did that for us. This is your reality. You don't get to change that through positive confession this is the world where it, wherein we have been placed to live and to be faithful. Here's where the encouragement comes from. If you belong to Jesus, not even that reality can, can, can crush you. Right? It can't. Right? So on the one hand, it, it's not as bad as you think. It's worse. Right? On the other hand, if you really belong to Jesus, you're going to make it. And so you need to secondly anticipate victory. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. There's great kings, powerful people, crying out for the rocks to crush them. He said, hey, eventually, 
That's, that's why there's a little bit of, not much, a little bit of a futurist in me. I'm like, I'm not sure that's come just yet, at least in its fullest sense. But you, you see, for the great day of wrath is coming. Who can stand? I got power, it hasn't helped me. I got money, hasn't helped me. I got cultural influence, hasn't helped me. I got a new pair of Uggs, hasn't helped me. Right? Nothing, I, there's nothing I, who can stand? Chapter 7 answers that question. And it does it by, by identifying two groups of people. Group one is chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to him to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. This again, symbolic picture, symbolic numbers, representing, I believe, there's a number of different, number of different opinions on this as well, but if you ask me, Pastor Joel, what do, you, what do you think this is? My best understanding of the text, this is redeemed Israel. These are our Jewish friends who come to understand who their Messiah is, and they are sealed. And then group two, beginning in verse nine. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, the, these groups are presented separately now, but we've already seen them together. In, in that symbolism around the 24 elders. you got 12 tribes of Israel, you got 12 apostles, and, and, and so you got 12 tribes now right alongside this uncountable number, multitude of the redeemed, and we see them overcoming every hardship and every bit of suffering in victory. And then we get to verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them or any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. It's bad. It's worse than you think it is. It's probably going to get worser, if that's even a word. Stuff is coming. Those riders are fierce. But when presidents and kings and rich and powerful say, who can stand? John in Revelation 7 says, my people can stand. And my people will stand. And they're not going to do it with the, the tricks and the power plays and all the tools of the world. Here's how they're going to do it. They're going to do it through worship. They're going to do it through worship. It's not the greatest king. It's not the strongest athlete, the most brilliant thinker. It's not the richest corporate executive. There will be no survivors except for my people who are called by my name. Man, I, there, there's been so much suffering. We just did a funeral here yesterday for somebody who died probably 30 years before he should have. Dealing with people who've lost loved ones, whether it's to COVID or to something else, man, ministering and, and suffering alongside, as I said, a 14-month-old baby that I don't even know yesterday. It just broke me because it was just like all this stuff coming down and, and people I've prayed with over the, the last several months and, and, and especially it just seems to have intensified, at least around my life. Hopefully you're not experiencing that the way I am, but believe me, if you're not now, it's probably coming or you've dealt with it in the past and you suffer with people. 
Some have lost their parents, one or both of them. Some have been diagnosed, several of our people this week, diagnosed with degenerative and possibly fatal diseases. I have, in 30 years of ministry, not experienced. I'm not saying it's never been this bad. I'm just, I'm just from my own experience, it's just heavy. It's just heavy. Because God's people are suffering, and because I look at his word, and, and I got no magic pill for you, but I do have a promise. You can stand. You can stand. And, and the way you stand is not with power, it's not with weapons, it's not with money, it's, it's with worship. Listen to these words from Eugene Peterson. His book, Reverse Thunder, right out here in the lobby. You should really pick it up. But he, this is his comment on these two chapters. These people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil, Revelation 6, are set alongside extravagant praise, Revelation 7. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. How they sing. The songs of the vision are in response to the statistics of evil. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. That's how you make it. That's how you make it. Let the enemy do his worst. Bring it. John says, there are a worshiping people who will not be moved. And they will stand in victory. PBS did a series about a year ago on the, on the history of the black church. I would encourage you to listen to it. If you're like me, you won't agree with everything you read about the history or even some of the, some of the political notions of it. But I'm going to tell you something. It is well worth the view. Henry Louis Gates of Harvard University leads that and that documentary. And I'm going to tell you, it is amazing because I think uh, when, when it comes to this theme, I, I don't think there's a group of people who are more acutely like what we read here than those dear brothers and sisters. I, I really don't. I used to tell people, in fact, I did a, I can remember distinctly teaching about biblical prophecy in India to a group of about 60 pastors. And I remember warning them, be careful. I'm not telling you not to believe it. I'm just saying be very careful of any scholarship around the book of Revelation that comes out of the United States because we've never suffered. And now I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I should have put a caveat in that, except for the black church. Listen to them. They know. They've experienced it. And they sang. Did they not? Did they not sing? Did they not worship? That's your calling and mine in this very moment that God has given us. And the promise of our endurance is the triumph of the gospel. Look at these words from Jesus in Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So as we move forward, we should expect that the enemy's going to do this stuff that he's going to be fierce, that he's going to fight dirty, that he's going to, he's just, you ever kicked over a wasp nest? Were they all calm and cool after you did it? Yeah. How many of you got stung? Pretty bad. Anybody have to go to the, the urgent care or somewhere after all that happened? You know what that is? All that swarming, all that stinging, all that pain, all that, all that fierceness, all that rage. 
It's the last cries of a defeated enemy because the nest is down. And I'm telling you the same is true with our enemy. The nest is down. And when he rages, when he rages, the gates of hell will not prevail. You and I need to anticipate victory. And the way we do that is we need to learn to live like a victor. Let me give you six ways very practically to do that in closing. Number one, respond to falsehood with, with truth. Embody and proclaim the whole gospel of Jesus Christ and believe that God will call people to himself. He's going to do it. I, it's not about me being persuasive. It's not about us. I don't know, introducing some new gimmick here on stage to evoke emotions out of people and get them to come. Listen, I, I, you, you can't trace that back to a move of God. You can trace that back to one man named Charles Grandison Finney. And, and I would tell you historically, I mean, I, I hate to walk on a guy's grave. I really do. But I will tell you historically, Finney is to blame for about 90% of what's wrong with us in the American church today because of all the gimmicks that he introduced trying to evoke emotions out of people. Listen, the Holy Ghost don't need my manipulation. He doesn't. Not one cent of it. What he needs is for me and you to be faithful, to love our neighbors and to embody the truth and believe that people will. I think about Paul headed into Corinth. Things didn't work out so well like he thought they might have on Athens. The philosophers basically laughed him off the hill, except for maybe one or two that said, we'll, we'll hear you about this later. I, I know what preachers feel like. I, I, I am one. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it, you'd always rather people respond than not respond. And he's headed into Corinth, just a bastion of all kinds of wickedness. I mean, stuff that would make Jerry Springer blush, this, this kind of stuff. And he's just going into the city, and he hears this voice saying, Go on and do not be afraid. I have many people in this city. There's a sovereign God whose arm is not too short to save. You respond to falsehood with truth. Don't move an inch. Number two, respond to war with peace. See, that red horse doesn't just ride up the borders. He, he rides up inside hearts. And when he wants room in your soul, you need to remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. When your temper flares, right? One of the biggest encouragements I've gotten this week is at the funeral yesterday, one of our members came up to me and said, look, I got, I got all kinds of things that I'm concerned about in the world. He mentioned Russia and Ukraine. He's mentioned other places in the world. He mentioned things internally here, even in our own country that that trouble him, which are completely understandable. And, and, and he said, but I've just, he said, the more I go, he said, you know, my opinions really haven't changed about solutions, civic and otherwise. But the more I read and the more I listen and the more I try to follow Jesus, the more I become convinced that I really can only do one thing in all this, and that is just love my neighbor. I just need to love people before and after I find out whether or not they agree with me. I just need to love and so when your temper flares up, you know what that is? I'm not, again, there are times when you need to get angry. All right? Injustice makes God angry. Immorality makes God angry. I'm not saying anger is wrong. I'm saying unjust anger is wrong. And when that selfish kind of what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my life, I've got to get my stuff, I've got to get what's mine, and it, it flares up in your soul, that's a check engine light. 
telling you something's wrong. And it's a sign that you got the red horse running around in the engine of your soul. Whether it's road rage, a hit dog will holler. Whether it's old wounds that you continue to nurse, you're going to have a tendency to punish, to, to get revenge. Your, your witness, your witness is more important than being right. You defeat the red horse and its rider by as much as possible living at peace with all men and the sanctification. Notice how peace and sanctification go together like that? Without which no one will see the Lord. That's how you fight the red horse. You respond to war with peace. Number three, respond to scarcity with generosity. One of the first things I did when I came here is I changed the coffee. Now, I will admit to you that part of that is because I'm a coffee snob. My wife did that to me. I used to be just fine with police station coffee, and then I married a snooty woman when it came to coffee. And so, I mean, we've gotten into French press and, and all that. I love you, baby. We've gotten into, like, it's, it's but, but I, I got here, and I thought, oh, we got to change this. So ever since about middle 2016, we've been drinking Black Dog around here, baby. For a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I really do believe that, that you're in the community. You should be part of that community. You should contribute to that community. And it's, it's, among other things, that means we ought to be buying and supporting local as much as possible around here. But, but here's the other reason, apart from the fact that I thought Maxwell House was nasty, okay? <laughs> we ought to be serving better stuff than that. Here's the other reason that I did that. Listen, it is wise to be frugal. It is it is righteous to not spend more than you make, to not expend more than you take in. It is wise and frugal to save. It is a sin unto God to be cheap. That's a very different thing. What's the, what, what, what do I mean when I say hospitality? I mean you give out of your abundance. Listen, we didn't, we didn't have a whole lot back then in terms of resources, certainly not compared to, to what we have now, but but that, that was just one of many seeds planted to grow a larger vine of radical hospitality and generosity among us. And I know you're thinking, coffee? You got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. Here's my challenge for you. In this world in which we live, take that into your homes. Take that heart and that spirit into your neighborhoods. Get to know your neighbor. Love them. Ask them how you can pray for them. Listen to this. There are 900 plus souls that call this church family home right now. How many thousands more could we touch than we already do if we just did this? All right? This is what the early Christians did. In a world where everybody is looking out for himself, in a world filled with high security fences and itty-bitty dining room tables, buy a bigger table. Fill it with food. Put more chairs around it. Respond to scarcity with generosity. Invest yourself in the lives of your neighbors and the people that you, and I both believe on the basis of Scripture that Jesus died to save. Let's become an oasis in this cultural desert with our generosity. Number four, respond to death with healing and faith. James tells us to pray for healing. and We have done that here. We have seen that here, and apparently from phone calls I've taken and visits I've made this week, we have more of that to do, my fellow pastors. So we will keep on doing it. Scripture also tells us to trust the wisdom of God in the way of that healing. Sometimes it's miraculous, isn't it? 
Yeah, we believe God still heals. We believe it because we have put hands on people before and they've gone back and the doctor cannot find the freaking tumor. The Lord is the great physician. We believe that here. We believe it. Sometimes it's miraculous. Sometimes it's through the common grace that, we have that we're allotted today that didn't even exist 75 years ago. It's a pill. It's a surgeon. It's, it's, some, it's a gift of God's grace to all of humanity and not just to us. And then sometimes that healing comes to you and to me by Jesus just simply inviting us across the river. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, starting with Jesus' own Everybody else graduates into perfected glory. I mean, if, I, if, I, if I'm diagnosed tomorrow with some fatal disease and the elders lay hands on me as I would ask them to and God miraculously heals me and I thank him for it, guess what eventually still happens? I'm going to die. You know what happens in that moment? Perfected glory. Perfected glory. Which is why we sing even at the graveside. Knowing that when that pale horse rides up into your bedroom, if you're following Jesus, the only thing he looks at is a mortal putting on immortality. We respond to death with healing and faith. Number five, respond to martyrdom by being willing to die. Time is keeping me from going much further with this. I'm just going to tell you, that might be part of the cost that you pay for following Jesus. I've told people that. Like, I'm called to missions, or I, I want to do that, or I want to go overseas, or I, well, I don't know about my expertise. I don't, I don't know what I need. Do I need to go to seminary? Probably not, but you do need to be willing to die. Because that, that, that might be what it costs. Can I be frank? It might be a cost our children pay. You're raising them to follow him. You better count the cost. You better make sure. And if there's a reservation in your soul, you better stop for a minute and go, am I really following the Jesus of Scripture? Is this something I really want to do? It's that serious. It is also that worth it. Jesus is worthy of everything. Lastly, Respond to calamity with confidence. That's another way of saying live at peace even when it seems like the whole world is coming apart. Some of y'all act just like the world, and it's not in your sexual immorality or anyway, it's in, it's in your drama. All right? Something bad happens across the street or on the other side of the world, and I, I, I've, I've hid some of y'all on social media. I have, and it's not, it's, I love you. It's not about loving you. It's, not, it's just like, I. Yeah, I mean, every other post is, bah! <laughs> that is precisely the opposite of what Jesus called you to do. You and I are to be the non-anxious presence in an anxious world. That's why Jesus promises to take that from us. I'm not talking about medical anxiety, the things that you might need to see a, me a mental health professional about. I get it. We're with you on that. We'll suffer through you. I I'm talking about this ungodly form of anxiety that the scriptures describe, something totally different than the medical conditions we're aware of, right? Where you just, you just explode. We, we hold it together when the world comes apart because we've been promised that we're going to have victory in the end, and we either believe that or we don't. 
Again, we're going to see what we're made of. The last two years were hard. I don't, I don't want to discount that. It's been hard on the world. It's been hard on the, the, the church of the Lord Jesus. But i got to tell you, it, compared to some of what we read here and will read later, that was a beta test that God's people, by and large, have miserably failed. Because consumer Christianity... I want what I want. I want to hear what I want to hear. I, I want my ears scratched. I, I don't want to have to suffer. I don't want, and the prosperity gospel, which is just the more overt, stupid version of this, but they're basically from the same satanic root, and it's just the white rider. And you've been sucked into that. But if you've got the real thing, think about this. What did war ever do to the church? What did famine, I mean, and there have been a lot of them, have there not, over the last 2,000 years? What, did, what, what permanent wounds did any plague or any amount of global suffering ever inflict on the church? You and I sit here in West Virginia in 2022. We've sung praises to Jesus. We've looked at and preached the word of Jesus. We're about to sing to Jesus some more. Where'd we come from? Where'd we come from? I'm going to tell you where we came from. We came from good stock. We came from men and women of God who from the Middle East to North Africa to Europe and then across the Atlantic Ocean failed to submit in a good way to Antichrist forces. We sit here because the church stood 2,000 years ago and again 1,500 years ago and again 1,000 years ago. You and I would not be here without them. And here's the promise that they leave behind for us. All of those empires and all of those forces and all of those things that raised the concerns and anxiety of Christians for two freaking millennia did nothing. They're all gone. But we're still here. We're still here. And we're still here, I believe, because the Word of God tells us we're always going to be here. We're always going to be here. And so two weeks ago I asked, do you have a vision of this God, chapter 4, chapter 5, that is anywhere in the same universe as what these people saw? Today, do you believe in him? Will you worship him, whatever the cost? Because that's where you're going to find your ultimate victory. Let's pray together. I just want to ask you, do you, I mean, if I just said generically, do you know Jesus? I think probably nearly 100% would go, yeah, I, I know him. For some of you, that just means you know who he is. For some of you, you think you know him. Do you know him like this? Do you know him like this? Moreover, that, that's another way of actually asking this question. Does he know you? Many, he said, will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. We did. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Do you really know him? Do you really want to follow him? Let me, let me just invite you today in just a moment. Deacons, elders are going to take positions under these four crosses. In fact, I'm going to get under one of them myself. And we'll be here to pray with you. And I just want to invite you today into a life-changing encounter with this God that you will never walk away from. It will hold you through whatever is in your future, good, bad, or ugly, and you will have victory in the end. But it all comes from laying aside and laying down your own kingdom and your own desires and your own anxieties and just coming to him in faith and believing that Jesus offers himself to you today. How can you say no to that? Father, 
May your spirit move today in mighty ways. Lord, we ask for tangible expressions of it, but even beyond that, that a hundred years from this moment that your word will still be taking root in the lives of your people, the lives of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren who may be here in that moment. Father, make your presence known and transform lives today, I pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. I love you, church. Stand with me. If you need to respond, this is your moment. Jesus waits because he's patient. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.